0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Odoo. Odoo is a suite of user-friendly business applications designed to automate, streamline, and simplify every aspect of your business from anywhere at any time. For a free trial, go to odoo.com slash NPR.
1: Hey, it's Guy here. So sometimes forgiveness is pretty straightforward. You fight, you make up, you move on. But then at other times... It's not that simple. For example, when things like violence or loss or betrayal contest our ability to forgive. Well, that's the idea we're exploring on the show today. It's one of the most powerful episodes we ever produced when it originally aired back in May of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks TED Talks uh, Ted. TED TED Technology
2: Entertainment Design
1: Design Is that really what's TED for? <laughs> I've never known that Delivered never at never TED knows. conferences around the it's world the gift of the human imagination
0: We've had to believe in impossible things
1: The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio From NPR I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about forgiveness, asking for it, offering it, and why it can be so hard to forgive others, and even ourselves. And in this episode, we're going to hear some pretty difficult stories, stories that have to do with loss and violence and betrayal, stories that would test anyone's willingness to forgive. So first of all, can you can you introduce yourself, please?
3: Yes, this is Sue Klebold.
1: And you are talking to us from
3: Denver, Colorado.
1: So nearly 20 years ago, something happened that for Sue really shattered her world and her whole life. And what happened is still with her all the time.
3: I'll hear a name that might be a family name of one of the victims or I see an individual going down the street. In a wheelchair, and uh, they're about the age that they would have been if they'd been injured. And I get a visceral reaction.
1: What Sue's talking about was a national tragedy. And if you're too young to remember hearing about it on the news, you've definitely heard about it since. Here's Sue on the TED stage.
3: The last time I heard my son's voice was when he walked out the front door on his way to school. He called out one word in the darkness. Bye. It was April 20th, 1999. Later that morning at Columbine High School, my son Dylan and his friend Eric killed 12 students and a teacher, and wounded more than 20 others before taking their own lives. 13 innocent people were killed. Others sustained injuries, some resulting in disfigurement and permanent disability. There's no way to assess the magnitude of a tragedy like Columbine, especially when it can be a blueprint for other shooters who go on to commit atrocities of their own. Columbine was a tidal wave, and when the crash ended, it would take years for the community and for society to comprehend its impact. Today, I'm here to share the experience of what it's like to be the mother of someone who kills and hurts. The tragedy convinced me that I failed as a parent. And it's partially this sense of failure that brings me here today. Aside from his father, I was the one person who knew and loved Dylan the most. If anyone could have known what was happening, it should have been me, right? But I didn't know.
1: For for many years after the tragedy, did you ask yourself... What could I have done? Did you ask yourself that question all the time?
3: I asked myself that question all the time. I continue to ask myself that question all the time. In my mind, as the mother of someone who took his own life and killed and hurt other people, I feel tremendous guilt. Now, of course, guilt is part of parenting. I don't think I've met any parents that don't feel guilty about something, even if their children turned out just fine. But in this case, you know, I I couldn't think of anything I had done to teach him that violence was a solution to any problem. But for me, I have to own this. This is the path of my life. I didn't choose it, but I own it. And um, there's no way to run away from it.
1: After the Columbine shootings, Sue's entire life unraveled. For years, she and her husband dealt with lawsuits, which forced them into bankruptcy. They eventually split up. In 2001, Sue was diagnosed with breast cancer, and then she began to suffer from extreme anxiety and panic attacks. And all of this while trying to understand and to process what Dylan did. Has forgiveness been something that that you've thought a lot about over the years?
3: Um, My synonym for forgiveness is empathy. For me, what forgiveness is, it is the ability to understand and put yourself in the other person's shoes to see what they were thinking, experiencing, and feeling, because the need to forgive disappears once we have understanding. It has helped me to do the research I've done on brain health, to try to understand in my thinking that Dylan didn't merely choose to do this in the same way that you and I would make this decision as we're sitting here talking. And um, if I had to explain suicide to a child, if someone lost an uncle, for example, what we would say to a child is, your uncle became sick in his brain, and he couldn't think the way we think. And because of that, he hurt himself, or in Dylan's Mm -hmm. case, he hurt other people. And that's sort of the way I've processed this. When I talk about my son's death as a suicide, I'm talking about mental health. And in the same breath, I'm talking about violence. But the last thing I want to do is to contribute to the misunderstanding that already exists around mental illness. Only a very small percent of those who have a mental illness are violent toward other people, but of those who die by suicide, it's estimated that about 75 to maybe more than 90 percent have a diagnosable mental health condition of some kind. But my son's death was not purely a suicide. It involved mass murder. I wanted to know how his suicidal thinking became homicidal. But research is sparse, and there are no simple answers. Yes. He probably had ongoing depression. He had experienced triggering events at the school that left him feeling debased and humiliated and mad. It was appallingly easy for a 17-year-old boy to buy guns, both legally and illegally, without my permission or knowledge. And somehow, 17 years and many school shootings later, it's still appallingly easy. It has taken me years to try to accept my son's legacy. The cruel behavior that defined the end of his life showed me that he was a completely different person from the one I knew. Afterwards, people asked, how could you not know? What kind of a mother were you? I still ask myself those same questions. People would say to me, Didn't you ever tell Dylan that you loved him? Didn't you, you know, did you ever hug Dylan? Mm. And that would infuriate me. It mm. would infuriate me. And I would say, Of course I did. I, you know, took his face in my hands and I told him I loved him, you know, with my eyes eight inches from his. Um, but the truth is, before this had happened to me, I was sort of like everyone else. I believed that You know, some people were bad or did bad things. And um, I would certainly, if it was a young person, instantly think that the parents were responsible. Hmm. I think people are horrified, terrified by the thought that something like this could happen. And I think they had a need to believe that it had to have been something that was done through negligence or poor parenting and that has helped me a lot to try to understand and uh, cope with when I am attacked, when people are angry with me, when people blame me, it's terrifying to think that we can do our best and do things that are good and right, and something as horrible as this can still happen
1: as a parent do you do you struggle with the idea of forgiving yourself?
3: That's the hardest part. Hmm. Um, that if there's anything that I still struggle with, it's that. I don't think you can lose a child to suicide and not look back and wish you had done something differently to save them. And the other question, of course, I have dealt with is the concept of whether or not people forgive me. And, you know, in my heart, I think I tried in every way to love my son, to raise him. I did not know if there were magic words that could have been said, if there were interventions that could have been made. At the time, I did the best I could do for him because of him, because I loved him, and I would not want him to come to any harm under any circumstances.
1: How have you interacted with families who were affected by the tragedy? Do you have any interaction with any, any of them?
3: I do. This has always been one of the most difficult things that I've had to deal with. Hmm. Because right from the beginning, I wanted to connect. Um, I I wrote letters to the families. Uh, I, we made a, a public apology in the newspaper. But honestly, there's no rule book for how to do this. Hmm. All of the families everybody was different. Everyone was an individual. And even in one family, their reactions to this tragedy would be different. I didn't want to re-traumatize people. But over the years, a few of the family members, and I will say individuals from families, no entire families, but the individuals have reached out to me. And we've developed a relationship. And it's been, from my perspective, wonderful and uh, healing, I think, for, for both of us. I know that I will live with this tragedy for the rest of my life. I know that in the minds of many, what I lost can't compare to what the other families lost. I know my struggle doesn't make theirs any easier. But here's something I've learned. If love were enough to stop someone who was suicidal from hurting themselves, suicides would hardly ever happen. But love is not enough. I've learned that no matter how much we want to believe we can, we cannot know or control everything our loved ones think and feel. And the stubborn belief that we are somehow different that someone we love would never think of hurting themselves or someone else can cause us to miss what's hidden in plain sight. And if worst-case scenarios do come to pass, we'll have to learn to forgive ourselves for not knowing, or for not asking the right questions, or not finding the right treatment. In the end, what I know comes down to this even the most vigilant and responsible of us may not be able to help. But for love's sake, we must never stop trying. Thank you.
1: Sue Klebold. She wrote about her story in a book called A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. By the way, all the profits from that book are being donated to organizations that work for mental health awareness, research, and suicide prevention. You can see Sue's entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about forgiveness. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, The Hopeful Neighborhood Project. What if we all used our unique gifts and talents to pursue the common good of our own neighborhoods? The Hopeful Neighborhood Project is building a collaborative network committed to improving neighborhood well-being. Their team and free resources can support you as you imagine the possibilities for a more hopeful neighborhood right where you live. Visit hopefulneighborhood.org to connect with a neighborhood project coach and learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor K-12 with more than 20 years' experience powering tuition-free schools that offer personalized learning from state-certified teachers. With the K-12-powered Stride Career Prep Program, students gain the skills and confidence they need to prepare for their next steps and create a future that's right for them. Parents can be there for their students along the way to help keep them on track and share in new discoveries. Learn more at k12.com NPR.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, forgiveness. Ideas about its power and when to forgive yourself and whether you should forgive others. Sorry about that, Tom, if that was in your ears. Oh, that's all right. I'm awake now. Okay. Thordis? Hello? This is Thordis Elva in Stockholm, Sweden. Hello. Hello, Thordis. I can hear you also.
4: Can anybody hear me? I can Can hear an an echo echo of myself myself now
1: and Tom Stranger. I'm here
5: in London. Hopefully you can hear me loud and clear.
4: Yes, can you hear me? Oh,
1: good. Yes, I can.
4: Oh, fantastic.
1: So even though the three of us were talking to one another from three different countries, Thordis and Tom have actually known each other since they were teenagers. Thordis grew up in Iceland, and Tom, who's from Australia, spent some time there through an exchange program in 1996. They became friends, they started dating... And about a month into it, something happened.
4: Something like this, a trauma of this nature that marks you so deeply, will of course always be a part of you. It's never going to be something that I can just, you know, cut away from my existence.
5: Uh, This was something that I kept hidden. This was something that I wasn't willing to to share with anyone uh, for a long time.
1: Thordis Elva and Tom Stranger tell their story from the TED stage. And just a quick warning... This talk does include some graphic language and descriptions of sexual violence.
4: I was 16 and in love for the first time. Going together to the Christmas dance was a public confirmation of our relationship, and I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. No longer a child, but a young woman. High on my newfound maturity, I felt it was only natural to try drinking rum for the first time that night, too. That was a bad idea. I became very ill, drifting in and out of consciousness in between spasms of convulsive vomiting, and the security guards wanted to call me an ambulance. But Tom acted as my knight in shining armor and told them he'd take me home. It was like a fairy tale, his strong arms around me, laying me in the safety of my bed. But the gratitude that I felt towards him soon turned to horror, as he proceeded to take off my clothes and get on top of me. My head had cleared up, but my body was still too weak to fight back, and the pain was blinding. I thought I'd be severed in two. In order to stay sane, I silently counted the seconds on my alarm clock. And ever since that night, I have known that there are 7,200 seconds in two hours. Despite limping for days and crying for weeks, this incident didn't fit my ideas about rape like I'd seen on TV. Tom wasn't an armed lunatic, he was my boyfriend. And it didn't happen in a seedy alleyway, it happened in my own bed. By the time I could identify what had happened to me as rape, he had completed his exchange program and left for Australia. So I told myself it was pointless to address what had happened, And besides, it had to have been my fault somehow. I was raised in a world where girls are taught that they get raped for a reason. Their skirt was too short. Their smile was too wide. Their breath smelled of alcohol. And I was guilty of all of those things. So the shame had to be mine. It took me years to realize that only one thing could have stopped me from being raped that night, and it wasn't my skirt. It wasn't my smile. It wasn't my childish trust. The only thing that could have stopped me from being raped that night is the man who raped me, had he stopped himself.
5: I have vague memories of the next day. The after effects of drinking, a certain hollowness that I tried to stifle nothing more, but I didn't show up at Thortis' door. It is important to now state that I didn't see my deed for what it was. The word rape didn't echo around my mind as it should have, and I wasn't crucifying myself with memories of the night before. It wasn't so much a conscious refusal, it was more like any acknowledgement of reality was forbidden. My definition of my actions completely refuted any recognition of the immense trauma I'd caused Thortis. To be honest, I repudiated the entire act in the days afterwards and when I was committing it. I disavowed the truth by convincing myself it was sex and not rape.
1: Tom and Thortis didn't really talk much after that, especially about that night. And at that point, they were living at opposite ends of the world, with Tom back in Australia and Thordis in Iceland.
4: Nine years after the Christmas dance, I was 25 years old and headed straight for a nervous breakdown. My self-worth was buried under a soul-crushing load of silence that isolated me from everyone that I cared about, and I was consumed with misplaced hatred and anger that I took out on myself. One day, I stormed out of the door in tears after a fight with a loved one, and I wandered into a cafe where I asked the waitress for a pen. I always had a notebook with me, claiming that it was to jot down ideas and moments of inspiration, but the truth was that I needed to be constantly fidgeting, because in moments of stillness, I found myself counting seconds again. But that day, I watched in wonder as the words streamed out of my pen, forming the most pivotal letter I've ever written, addressed to Tom. Along with an account of the violence that he subjected me to, the words, I want to find forgiveness, stared back at me, surprising nobody more than myself. But deep down, I realized that this was my way out of my suffering, because regardless of whether or not he deserved my forgiveness, I deserved peace. It was a detailed account of that night. It was a chronology of what had happened and what he'd subjected me to. It was also a description of the consequences it had had on my life since then. And then it concluded in this wish of mine to find some sort of release from this. Um, I didn't want to be a prisoner of my past any longer. Um, but I wanted to make him aware of the hurt he'd caused.
1: Tom, when you um when you first read Thordis' letter to you, what went through
5: your head? There was memories triggered, um, and there was a there was a horror at learning what I did, uh, learning what I subjected her to learning what I was capable of uh, reliving that night in a way that I'd refused to do up until that point through uh, an unconscious denial in essentially refusing to revisit that night and to see my act as rape and it felt like uh, to push it away would have caused more pain so I replied shortly thereafter and, and asked where to from here. Hmm. I mean, you immediately
1: acknowledged and called it what it was. I mean,
5: you understood that what you had done was rape, was sexual violence. I should state that I sunk this in a black box for a long time. I did not want to face up to it and and own the fact that myself from a well-raised background with a a self-perception as a decent guy was capable of this. So, Yeah. That was the beginning of trying to comprehend it, but then it took me a long time for me to understand the ramifications and the, the depth of the pain that I'd caused. Thortis, um, why do
1: you think that you were seeking forgiveness? I mean, you, you, you wrote those words in that letter. You wrote, I want to find forgiveness. Um, why did you think that you wanted to try to forgive somebody who did that to you?
4: In my mind... Forgiveness is absolutely not about laying your blessing over the hurt that was caused. On the contrary, forgiveness underlines the hurt that was caused, but that you yourself don't want to be weighed down by it anymore. I didn't want to have this dictate my life. I didn't want to have it taint my self-image anymore. Or my future chances at happiness or inner peace. So for me, forgiveness is not something sacrificial that you give to someone else. It's very much an act of self-interest and an act of self-empowerment. And first and foremost, release. Release from negative emotions that, in my case, were very emotionally taxing. And we're um, taking a toll on all of my relationships and also on my own well-being. But I also want to make it clear that I do understand people that find other emotions empowering, such as anger. Mm-hmm. For some people, lingering in anger is a place where they feel empowered. Yeah. So this is very much a personal, individual kind of connection that people have with these concepts whether it's forgiveness or anger or reconciliation or or revenge any of these are, are highly personal concepts
1: during their correspondence Tom wrote to Thordis that he thought he should be punished
4: but by that time the statute of limitations for this crime had passed in Iceland because uh, in 1996 having non-consensual sex with someone who is unable to fight back, wasn't even classified as rape. It was classified as a form of sexual misconduct.
5: It felt like the only right way amongst a lot of wrong was for me to do time in jail. You know, and in me speaking to this, I certainly don't want to sanitize the act. I don't want to even be seen as rewarded in any way for simply admitting publicly to what I did. It's a case of I I completely believe that taking responsibility for hurt you've caused should be a natural course of action.
1: But even after writing back and forth with Tom for years, and in a way, moving on with her own life by getting married and having a child, Thordis still felt that she needed something more.
4: I had stated the things I wanted to state and asked the questions that I wanted to ask, and I still didn't feel entirely fulfilled, in a sense. And I realized the writing format is, after all, silent.
1: So Thordis proposed an idea. Meet face-to-face with Tom halfway between
5: Iceland and Australia. And we decided upon the city of Cape Town and there we met for one week. The city itself proved to be a stunningly powerful environment to focus on reconciliation and forgiveness. Nowhere else is healing and reproachment being tested like it has in South Africa. As a nation, South Africa sought to sit within the truth of its past and to listen to the details of its history. Knowing this only magnified the effect that Cape Town had on us. Over the course of this week, we literally spoke our life stories to each other, from start to finish.
1: When you saw Tom in Cape Town, what did you do? Did you shake his hand? Did you hug him? Did you just sort of keep your distance and say hello? How did you respond to him when you saw him?
4: Well, the whole idea was, of course, um, ridden with doubt. I mean, I had multiple doubts along the way. I had nobody's footsteps to follow in. This was um, in very many ways a a scary, but I felt also a, a necessary step for me to take. And when I say scary, I don't mean in the sense that I was afraid of Tom. I would never have undertaken this journey if I would have thought that it posed a risk to my physical safety. But it was scary to face up to some of the pain of the past and to to try and set myself free from it and thinking that it might not work, it might not be successful in the way that I, I'm hoping. But when I did see Tom, that again was another, another, like I guess, overwhelming moment in my life with basically 16 years of history just coming, rushing back to me. And um, the first thing that actually ended up happening after we greeted each other was um, that we, we walked down that street um, where the hotel was located. And just moving, just not standing with 16 years worth of history weighing down on, on my shoulders was relief, but also, I guess, symbolic for wanting to move forward with my life.
1: Were there moments during that week in Cape Town where you, you thought, maybe this is a mistake?
4: Yes, there were such times. There were times where it simply felt like we were speaking in different languages and we were unable to see each other's point. And Mm. at such times, I did have moments where I thought, what the hell am I doing? Uh, This has been one crazy failed mission, and I just want to get on the next plane home to my husband and son. But we managed to work through them and find common ground again. So um, the end result of that journey was a feeling of accomplishment, and it had resulted in questions that had haunted me for years being actually answered face-to-face. So it did result in a feeling that perhaps something constructive could be built out of the ruins of the past, basically.
1: Tom, when when you talk about this act of violence that you perpetrated... Do you think of that 18-year-old as a different person or or was it you? Was it the person I'm talking to now?
5: No, there's no disassociation with 18-year-old Tom. There's been an excavation of my mind space that night and trying to understand who I was, what influences were around me. You know, I wasn't impervious to influences from whether it be media, whether it be peer group, whether it be... The culture that I grew up in and and notions of Australian masculinity, you know, I've tried to understand the environment that I grew up in to locate where this misconception and where these attitudes came from and what drove my behaviour that night. But it's a very fine line to walk because it is undeniable that I made choices that night and that there was agency and that I made decisions. So I, I don't want to give too much weight, I guess, to external factors or influences. But I do hope that's where the discussion is is born out of with telling my part in that night.
1: Would you characterize what you experienced with Tom as a form of forgiveness or reconciliation or closure or, or are those just too simplistic?
4: Um, our story on Ted is called Our Story of Rape and Reconciliation but... I think both of us went into this process for reasons that had to do with placing the responsibility where it belonged, and I think that was necessary for Tom as well as it was for me, because that in itself is a form of reconciliation. I think the pain that hurts the most in life is the pain that you can't reason with, that you don't understand. And for me to be able to pose questions, to state truths, to explore this part of my life that had caused so much pain, it resulted in a deeper understanding that that helped me let go of self-blame and shame and, and questions that were, were keeping me up at night. So in that sense, um, it's um, symbolic of this journey that I undertook to uh, a over responsibility that I wrongfully shouldered for many years to the person to whom it rightfully belonged so that um, I could move forward into a future that wasn't as deeply marked by the past.
1: Thorda Selva and Tom Stranger, they wrote about their story in a book called South of Forgiveness, a true story of rape and responsibility. Tom, by the way, will be donating all of his profits from the book to a women's shelter in Reykjavik, Iceland. You can see their full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about forgiveness, and in a moment, why it could be the key to happiness. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. NPR.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor K-12, with more than 20 years' experience powering tuition-free schools that offer personalized learning from state-certified teachers. With the K-12-powered Stride Career Prep Program, students gain the skills and confidence they need to prepare for their next steps and create a future that's right for them. Parents can be there for their students along the way to help keep them on track and share in new discoveries. Learn more at k12.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. Here's a fun fact. Insurance is less expensive than you think, thanks to State Farm's surprisingly great rates. Another fun fact? Leonardo da Vinci invented modern-day scissors as a method for cutting canvas. Now that you're an expert on inventors with extremely Italian names, it's time to get great insurance at a surprisingly great rate. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz and on the show today ideas about forgiveness which is something that on the surface seems like it should be kind of simple right you have a fight you come together you talk about it one person or maybe both of you says sorry and then you move on
0: oh in the best of all worlds that's the way it would happen sadly that's not the way it usually happens
1: This is Elizabeth Lesser. She's written several books about spirituality and healing. And Elizabeth says part of the process of healing begins with forgiveness. If someone were to say to you, you know, what's the point? Why should I even bother forgiving someone? What would you say?
0: I would say, uh, what do you want in your life? What do you want in your relationships? And if you say, I'd like them to be harmonious. I'd like them to be free. I'd like not to be in a state of blame all the time or shame. If you answer like that, then I would say, look at what's unforgiven. Look at where you know you did wrong, and you would like to go to that person and say, I'm sorry, can we start over? If you want to have a happier life, I would say, practice forgiveness.
1: Is forgiveness about the other person, or is forgiveness about me?
0: It's always about both. It is very, very rare where a slight that turns into a grudge that is in need of forgiveness is only about one of the parties. In most of our day-to-day situations, with colleagues at work, with your partner, with your children, with your friends, most of the time, if you really got down with each other and put aside your pride and your defensiveness and you had those hard conversations, you'd find a place where both people had something to ask for forgiveness from the other and to forgive the other.
1: And it's hard. Forgiving somebody is really hard. Why is it so hard?
0: Well, I learned why it was so hard In the biggest way yet in my life, and I say yet because I'm going to keep learning this. But I learned it recently in the experience I had with my sister Maggie as she was fighting cancer and I was her bone marrow donor.
1: Elizabeth told that story from the TED stage
0: Two years ago, my younger sister came out of remission from a rare blood cancer. And the only treatment left for her was a bone marrow transplant. And against the odds, we found a match for her, who turned out to be me. I come from a family of four girls. And when my sisters found out that I was my sister's perfect genetic match, their reaction was, really? You? (laughs) A perfect match for her? Which is pretty typical for siblings. In a sibling society, there's love, and there's friendship, and there's protection, but there's also jealousy, and competition, and rejection, and attack. When I discovered I was my sister's match, I went into research mode, and I discovered that bone marrow transplants are fraught with danger. If my sister made it through the near-lethal chemotherapy, she still would face other challenges. My cells might attack her body, and her body might reject my cells, and both could kill her. Rejection, attack. Those words had a familiar ring in the context of being siblings. My sister and I had a long history of love, but we also had a long history of rejection and attack from minor misunderstandings to bigger betrayals. We were hesitant to tell our truths, to reveal our wounds, to admit our wrongdoings. But when I learned about the dangers of rejection or attack, I thought, it's time to change this. What if we faced any pain we had caused each other, and instead of rejection or attack, could we listen, Could we forgive? Could we merge? Would that teach our cells to do the same? After the transplant, all the blood flowing in her veins would be my blood, made from my marrow cells. Inside the nucleus of each of those cells is a complete set of my DNA. I will be swimming around in you for the rest of your life, I told my slightly horrified sister. <laughs> I think we better clean up our relationship.
1: Can you tell me about about your sister, about Maggie? What, what was she like?
0: My sister was the one in the family who everybody loved. She's just a... Completely creative, funny, live wire of a tiny person. She was under five feet and just a little, little thing, but full of energy and brilliance and humor. And she was tough. You know, sometimes people who are really small get really tough. Mm. So she had like a foul mouth at the age <laughs> of like five and wouldn't let anybody um, think she was cute. And she became a nurse practitioner who took care of the rural poor in Vermont. And she was a farmer and she raised her own food and she slaughtered her own animals. And she also was a brilliant artist, very talented, very funny. And kept everything inside
1: what, what what happened with your relationship was there was there like a, a a break or was it just that you guys grew apart was there what what created the resentment between you?
0: Well, one of the things that created the resentment between us is that we were siblings. <laughs> I've never met any sibling who doesn't have both a loving and a real conflictual thing going on, but the real split came when we were in our 30s and 40s when I went through a very difficult period in my life when I got divorced, and Maggie rejected me. She turned away from me, Hmm. and I never understood why, and our children were cousins and loved each other, and even though we would visit, there was a real rift between us, and I never bothered to say what is going on? I want more from you. What happened? And she never bothered to explain herself. So when my sister needed my bone marrow, we got really brave and said, What was that about? And explained ourselves to each other. I found out things that had been going on in my sister's life with her own marriage that were so tragic and she was too afraid to tell me and she was too afraid to be around me because she thought if she followed my lead she would have to make the same changes in her own marriage and she was terrified and afraid so it was easier for her just to cut me out
1: Hmm. wow so so how, how did how did it work i mean how did you how did you go about trying trying to fix your relationship
0: before I had my bone marrow harvested, we actually went to a therapist several times. For me, that seemed like the natural thing to do because I'm such a psychotherapeutic person. For my sister, it was really out of the box of what she normally does. She's like more of get over it, go take a walk. <laughs> you know, like like she thinks a, a lot of what I do and think about is somewhat self-indulgent. But we both met in the middle where... We we found a way to talk to each other, where we both could listen, and we both could understand and get down to the marrow of who each of us really were. After the transplant, we began to spend more and more time together. It was as if we were little girls again. We looked at and released years of stories and assumptions about each other, and blame and shame until all that was left was love. I left the hamster wheel of work and life to join my sister on that lonely island of illness and healing. We spent months together in the isolation unit, in the hospital, and in her home. My sister said that the year after transplant was the best year of her life, which was surprising. She suffered so much, but she said life never tasted as sweet, and that because of the soul-bearing and the truth-telling we had done with each other, she became more unapologetically herself with everyone. She said things she'd always needed to say. She did things she always wanted to do. The same happened for me. I became braver about being authentic with the people in my life.
1: Was there a point where uh, where you and Maggie just thought, wow, we wasted all these years by not, um, by not trying to forgive each other?
0: Yes. I think it was after the transplant, actually, and her body was indeed beginning to reject my cells. And we went back into therapy, and I was kind of beating myself up maybe for not being as completely loving and forgiving as I could be. And in that therapy session, when I was beating myself up, my sister said to me, you know, Liz, you don't have to be perfect to be my perfect match. Let's stop trying to be perfect, and let's just be with each other.
1: Did you feel like you guys got to a place where you both were totally reconciled?
0: Yeah. And you know, I I would have to say I have never been as close and in love with someone as I was with my sister Maggie toward the end of her life. We were still, um, I'm sure if she had lived a long time, capable of getting into other skirmishes. But what happened was, in those moments in our therapy and afterwards when we kind of looked into each other's eyes and put down the past, I, I have never felt more at one with someone as I was with her. After that best year of my sister's life, the cancer came roaring back. And this time there was nothing more the doctors could do. They gave her just a couple of months to live. The night before my sister died, I sat by her bedside. She was so small and thin. I could see the blood pulsing in her neck. It was my blood, her blood, our blood— When she died, part of me would die too. I tried to make sense of it all, how becoming one with each other had made us more ourselves, and how by facing and opening to the pain of our past, we'd finally been delivered to each other, and how by stepping out of time, we would now be connected forever." My sister left me with so many things, and I'm gonna leave you now with just one of them. You don't have to wait for a life or death situation to clean up the relationships that matter to you, to offer the marrow of your soul, and to seek it in another. We can all do this. We can be the one to take the first courageous step toward the other and to do something or to try to do something other than rejection or attack. We can do this with our siblings and our mates and our friends and our colleagues. We can do this with the disconnection and the discord all around us.
1: You know, I was, I was thinking, like, what what is it that stops us from doing this? I mean, just just to be the person who's the first to step up and say, you know, to say, I'm sorry. But then I think, you know, for me and probably for a lot of people, you know, we'd have to let go of our pride. I mean, I I would have to compromise my principles or or undermine my position. Yeah.
0: You know that that cliche, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you are right, but actually rarely because right precludes the other person's point of view. And so... Do you want to be right, or do you want to seek a, a, a true relationship with another person? And often that means saying, oh, man,
1: I'm sorry. Let's start over. And some things just uh, you can't repair, right? I mean, there are obviously there are many examples, and you've been through them, and I have. And I mean, you went through a divorce. I mean, some things just can't be fixed.
0: Yeah, but... Forgiveness and fixing are two different things. Hmm. There are some things that happen to us in life or there are some decisions we must make that are going to, quote unquote, hurt another person. We, we don't want our life to be one of being um, a doormat or having uh, no opinions or apologizing and, and not and not seeking righteous indignation when it's called for. Forgiveness doesn't mean being a wimp. It doesn't mean being weak. It doesn't mean having no principles and no values. Sometimes we have to stand firm for what we believe and make really hard decisions. But when the fire is over, always in the ashes are opportunities to repair to move forward without vengeance being required. That, that's kind of the way us humans seem to live. We make massive mistakes, we do stupid things, we do things to survive. And then there's an opportunity to learn from them and move forward with grace. And forgiveness and that gracefulness are very connected.
1: Elizabeth Lesser, she's the co founder of the Omega Institute. Her book is called Marrow, a Love Story. You can find her full talk at TED.com.
5: Use a weapon of words or fight with your fists. But can you forgive someone? Stand your ground and persist be the last one to blame but can you forgive
1: someone Hey, thanks for listening to our show on forgiveness this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner. With help from Ramtin Arablui, Thomas Liu, and Daniel Shukan. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TED Radio Hour at NPR.org. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the Ted Radio Hour from NPR.
5: Even began. Forgive someone.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dataiku, an AI and machine learning platform designed to give everyone in the enterprise the ability to work with and understand data for better decision making. Learn more at dataiq.com.